turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, third book in your New Testament. We're in chapter 7 today. Uh, this is actually going to be our last Sunday in Luke for a little bit. Um, Pastor Brandon is going to be preaching next Sunday. My wife and I are later today heading for the beach for five days. Don't be too envious. The only days it's sunny there is today, and we get there this evening, and the day we leave. <laughs> Everything between then, rain and cool. But I get to spend the time with my favorite person, so it's all good. Week after that, we're going to start a four-week series on something that um, both looking at my own life and uh, speaking with other Christians over the years is surprisingly something that we find uh, experience too little of, and that's joy. So we're going to talk four weeks about the destination of joy, and then we'll return to Luke after that. Well, the title of my message today is Being Forgiven Can Make You Crazy. Now, what I mean by crazy is doing something unexpected, off the wall, just because of uh, that's your response to how grateful you are. And um, I was thinking about things that, and other aspects of our lives that we do that seem kind of crazy, uh, maybe later or to other people. And I thought one of the, one of the main things is what, what men do when they're going to get married. They want to propose to their uh, fiancé. Um, they raid their savings account of thousands and thousands of dollars, in some cases take out a loan, and they buy a piece of jewelry for this woman that they're just so overwhelmed with and overcome by that they think the way to express that is to buy this very expensive piece of jewelry, even put themselves uh, in hock if they need to, to buy it. Something that 10 years later after they're married, they wouldn't dream of doing. I mean, how, think of it. How many, how many of you wives have gotten a necklace from your husband that he borrowed money to buy 10 years after you got married? You wouldn't do that. I'm just like, why would I do that? And yet sometimes that's done before, before marriage. It's, it seems crazy to anybody looking in who hasn't done it. Seems just absurd. And yet it's, the, it's this uh, extravagant expression of the love that he has for this woman. Now, today we're going to look at an interesting story uh, in the Gospels, a, a woman that came to Jesus and was in an extravagant way trying to show her a gratitude for what Christ had done for her. And so Luke chapter 7, let me read these verses for us and then uh, pray and then we'll uh, talk about them a bit. Starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. And so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard that he was eating there, she brought a, a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. And then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, huh, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one 
50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, and so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, well, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Lord God, this seems nuts. Even seems a little inappropriate. And maybe part of the problem is that some of us see ourselves even before Jesus as clean rather than dirty. And thus forgiveness is not that big of a deal because after all, we never needed Jesus like to the extent that those people needed Jesus. One of the things that haunts me every Sunday morning when we look into your word is the fear that we simply get together for a Bible study, go home, and the Holy Spirit never once penetrates the thick protective barrier that we have around our hearts put there to keep you from getting too close. And I pray today for my brothers and sisters, for those who don't know Christ, and for this messed up preacher that you would not just penetrate that protective shield, but that you would dismantle it and that the Holy Spirit would be able to have his voice ring through and true to our hearts. That the enemy, who has a different plan and hope altogether, would be bound, would be silenced, and that we'd leave here today not just having had a study, but having had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, God himself, in such a way that crazy would not any longer be off the table for us, but an active option. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to read through the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would find four stories, one in each of the Gospels, similar to this. Not just like it, 
In fact, the other three accounts, the one Matthew, Mark, and John, are different enough that we think that this is a separate incident from the one they're describing. In fact, there might have been two other incidents that are described. In each case, though, it, it, it's a woman who's coming, always a woman, who's coming to express this kind of over-the-top appreciation to Jesus for being forgiven their sins. Now, if, if you're like me, when you read this story, there's, there's something that you feel uncomfortable about. The, the erotic overtones, almost seductive, are, are hard to miss for us. And yet what's interesting, even though there's a critic in every one of those, these stories, in this case, a Pharisee, in the other cases, a disciple of Jesus, never once do they convey that kind of dis-ease about some sort of womanly thing going on here that's not appropriate. The criticism here really actually is more about Jesus than it is the woman. Simon's looking down his nose at Jesus saying, look, if you were a real prophet, you would know what kind of woman this is and you wouldn't let her touch you. In all the other cases, it's the disciples complaining about the lavish extravagance of dumping this poor perfume out, wasting it, when that could have been sold in the marketplace and made a lot of money, and this money could have been given to poor people to alleviate suffering. And so I've come to the conclusion that our radar is not the same as it would have been in the first century about some things like this. They didn't view it as some sort of inappropriate. They didn't like it, but they didn't like it for different kinds of reasons. Now, the other thing that it's important for us to get because our Roman Catholic friends look at this passage and they conclude that the woman, because Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven, that she has had her sins forgiven now and it's as a result of some conduct on her part, namely that she comes back and gives this lavish expression of worship. But if you go to chapter, verse 47, it says, in, it says this in such a way in the NLT, Jesus says, her sins have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. And that's how I understand Jesus is saying here, because there apparently has been something, something has taken place before this. It may have been days before, weeks before, where this woman had an encounter with Jesus. He forgave her her sins at that time. And she has now come back. She's heard he's in town. He's, he's nearby. She goes home, gets this expensive jar of perfume, and co comes out deliberately to meet him to express her appreciation to him. Now, the question that comes, why does Jesus then say, your sins are forgiven twice, essentially twice, once your sins are forgiven, and the second time, uh, go, your faith has saved you, if he's already forgiven her? And I have a couple of ideas about that. One, um, because she may have been, because of her background, really skeptical that she could be forgiven. Some of us know that experience and, and wrestle with that. I, my sins are too bad. They're too awful. Couldn't be forgiven. The other possibility, based on the response of the people around Jesus when he says your sins are forgiven, is he was just trying to drive home the point again that I am here as an emissary from God and as such, can forgive sins. So that's kind of some of the background going into this. 
I want to contrast, first of all, this woman with this man. There's only three characters um, in view here, mainly. There's some other guests at this feast, but three characters really in view. Jesus, and on one side of him, this woman who certainly was a prostitute, had been a prostitute, and Simon the Pharisee. Now, we've bumped into the Pharisees before. We know the Pharisees not exactly big fans of Jesus. The, the Pharisees were very, uh, let, let's, let's say they were almost like a denomination. They were a very strict sect of Jews. And uh, 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 they would be a denomination that was very uh, conservative in its understanding of the Scriptures. They believed the Scriptures came from God, and so they did all in, in their power to try to do exactly what God said to do. The problem with the Pharisees was they thought that by keeping those laws explicitly, that God would accept them on their terms. In other words, he would look at how hard they were trying and how well they had done in most areas and say, um, okay, you're good to go. And the Pharisees were a little like the, the, the television commercial for E.F. Hutton years ago where they said, it was an investment firm, said, we make money the old-fashioned way. You know how that ends? We what? We earn it. And the Pharisees say, we, we get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. And so there was, there was friction between the Pharisees and, the Jesus, and Jesus almost from day one. And maybe that's the reason that Simon did not treat Jesus as he should have. Any honored guest in, in uh, Simon's home, in any Middle Eastern home, would have been treated a certain way. A host just always did this and this and this. It was um, hospitality in our context, probably not nearly as important as hospitality in the context not only of ancient Middle East, but even today. What you, what you present to someone who's coming into your home as uh, gestures of kindness, as a host or hostess, meant a great deal more than how much money you had, for example. It meant a, meant a great deal more than, than uh, the degrees that you had posted on your wall or, or who you worked for. Hospitality was very important. And yet, Simon was a lousy host. The first thing that would happen when you would come to a, a home in the Middle East is um, they would, the host there would take care of your feet. Now, why did your feet need taken care of? Because you were walking in dusty, sandy, dirty streets. Not only were dusty, but you have a lot of animals around and all the problems that they bring along with them. Uh, if you did have something on your uh, feet, it would have been open-toed, open sandals of some sort. So you go into a home, and the host is going to wash your feet. He's going to provide water. He's going to have a servant do it. If there's no servant available, he's going to do it himself. Simon didn't do that. This, the host is also going to uh, put his arms around you and greet you with a kiss uh, on your face. Now, if you come to my house for dinner, um, you come in the front door, I'm going to shake your hand. Uh, if I know you well enough, I might give you a hug. I'm probably not going to give you a kiss. Uh, because that's really not kind of our cultural shtick, but it was in, uh, in, in this part of the world in this time. Simon gave him no kiss. And you would also provide olive oil for your guests. Olive oil's everywhere in Palestine. The olive trees everywhere still are today. And it's, it's kind of common to have in home. And what they would do is provide the, uh, the guests with olive oil. They would probably actually put it on the guest's head to kind of streak, streak away the grime of the road, also to make the hair shine. 
but it's also very hot in Palestine much of the year. And so if you're out any time at all, it gets, your skin gets dry, and so you would put some of the olive oil on your, on your forehead as well. Every household had olive oil. Simon didn't provide any for his guests. And Jesus is looking at what Simon didn't do and now looking at what the woman that Simon was criticizing did do and says, look what she did. Now, as I said, this woman was almost certainly a prostitute. Uh, a prostitute, you may have read some things in our modern era about some prostitutes make a great deal of money. Some of them write books about their services and, 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 and speak of it with little shame at all. That would have not been the case for this woman. In the first century in the Roman Empire, uh, certainly in, in, in Palestine, a prostitute would have either been a slave or had been a slave before. There were different categories. There would have been some that were more well-off, but in general, uh, this was not a career advancement profession. Many of the women died relatively young. Uh, some of them worked in bars and would pick up their clients there. Some of them traveled with the Roman soldiers and uh, did domestic chores uh, in the camp as well as provide sexual services for the soldiers. But many of them were slaves of noble women and noblemen. It was not unusual for a nobleman to, uh, to buy a woman as a, a prostitute for in-house services. Some of the noble women, however, would run a number of prostitutes out of their house act functioning as a brothel. It was a, as a, it was a business. Uh, as I said, most of the women died young. That was in part because of the physically taxing life that they lived, in part because of the multiple pregnancies that they often had, as well as the botched abortions that sometimes they tried to do themselves. This was not a great profession to have. In many cases, the women didn't have any recourse. Now, it is possible that this woman was a, um, a more upper-crust prostitute. The access to this very expensive jar of perfume kind of raises that question. And I wonder, as she's come to see Jesus, whether or not this happened several days or weeks ago with Jesus, had, did she have time to change her wardrobe by now? Because everybody know, knew who was a hooker on the street. Seneca, who was a philosopher at the time of Jesus, writes that some of the, um, some of the prostitutes actually walked around the streets in the nude. Wouldn't that be disconcerting? Uh, the average um, prostitute, however, was, was dressed in a formal white toga. Now, many men wore those, but no woman was allowed to wear them except a prostitute. However, some of the upper crust prostitutes, um, they had very gaudy dresses, and some of them were are often, uh, actually, were made with a fabric that was see-through. And so I'm thinking about this woman coming down to see Jesus. Did she have time to find something else to wear? Or was it a dead giveaway when she walked into the courtyard of that house that day, who she was? She walks up to Jesus, and he's been invited there as a guest, and so he's leaning back. He's leaning on a sofa. She wasn't sitting in a dining room chair like you and I would be. He's leaning on a sofa, uh, has an end here, and he's probably leaning on it like this. His legs out here, bent at the knees, his feet towards the back. And it was not unusual in these days to have 
um, a party like this be kind of open to the street where strangers could even wander in and, and get part of the meal. And so she, she walks in. Nobody really thinks about it right away until she starts to do what she's starting to do. And she's doing all of the things that Simon failed to do. She's washing his feet, not with water, but with her tears, drying them with her hair. She's, she's kissing his feet repeatedly. She's pouring not common olive oil, but very expensive perfume over his feet. If I had perfume like that, I agree with the disciples. Why not keep it, sell it, and give the money to the poor? You know, the most expensive perfume out there on the market today is uh, Clive Christian Number One Imperial Majesty. Guess what it costs an ounce? Over $12,000. Now, part of that's not just because of the value of the liquid itself, but because of the the jar that it comes in there's actually a diamond on the thing there's 18 karat gold band around the thing one 19 ounce bottle costs two hundred fifteen thousand dollars. guys get that for your girlfriend for an engagement gift forget the diamond if you want something more reasonable you can buy a tiny little bottle of bloomingdale's for 5500 bucks but she's pouring this away Jesus, I'm sure, was not the kind of guy who, who worried about what he smelled like in terms of pouring perfume, but she's pouring this extravagantly all over his feet. It's running down on the ground. Nobody's going to get that benefit. Her conduct was scandalous, but as one of Luke, Luke commentaries uh, writes, clearly she was oblivious of public opinion. I don't, I don't really care what Simon thinks. The other guest thinks, but I really care about what Jesus thinks. Now, again, we have Jesus, this woman, and Simon. And I want to talk about the difference between people who think they're clean and people who think they're dirty. Because they're worlds apart. Jesus knew the heart of the woman. Jesus knew the heart of Simon. And so he says to him in verse, 40, uh, verse 41, I want to tell you this little story, this little parable, Simon, okay? You have two people. Uh, both have borrowed money from a lender, one very small loan and the other a very large loan. Neither of them can pay it back. And so the, the lender decides that he's just going to forgive the loan altogether. Now, Simon 500 pieces of silver forgiven, 50 pieces of silver forgiven. Which do you think, which person do you think was more grateful? Well, I don't know. I guess the person who had the larger loan forgiven. Last Saturday when I left uh, the office here to go home, I was going home and all of a sudden a light starts blinking in my dash and this car starts going back and forth, back and forth and Neither of those good signs. I'm no mechanic, but I know that much. That's not good sign. And uh, the light that was blinking said, overdrive off. I'm like, oh, that sounds transmission related. That's not good. So um, Sunday morning, came to church, um, pulled around to back into my typical parking spot, put the shifter in reverse. No reverse. I know that's not a good sign. 
Now, you remember the uh, months ago when I talked about the car that we have that I hate? Remember that? This wasn't that one. Um, in the providence of God, I replaced that one two months ago. Did not see this coming. And um, took it to the shop Monday, and the car's worth, you know, maybe 2800 bucks by now. And they said, that's a $4,500 transmission repair. I'm like, no, it's not. Mm-mm-mm-mm. I said, maybe we can find you a used one. I'm like, I already have a used one. I just replaced that four and a half years ago. So not really prepared to replace two cars in two months. So um, took out a partial loan. We did buy another car on Friday. Took out a partial loan for it. Now, if you loaned me 20 bucks and you told me, ah, you don't need to pay me back, Keith, I'd go, thanks. Well, actually, I'd try to pay it back first. But if you wouldn't take it, I, I'd, I'd be grateful. But I'd go home, I'd go on my way, and I wouldn't remember anything about it in the big scheme of things. But if my lender called me up and said, Keith, you know those thousands of dollars that you borrowed for that car? Yep. Uh, we're just going to forgive that. <sighs> now that would hit home. I still remember the night my father-in-law and mother-in-law came over to our house this was back when um, I was working in the cabinet shop and Betty and I had just concluded after um, kind of a, a searching with the Lord that God was calling me to ministry and that that fall I was going to start at Langst classes at Lancaster Bible College. And we owned a home in paradise and um, we had borrowed the money for the down payment for that. We didn't have any money young married couple. We had borrowed the down payment from my parents-in-law. And uh, we had not told Betty's parents yet about what um, we were planning. So they came over to visit us that night, and we didn't know it. They had something to tell us. And my father-in-law started, I said, you know, we've been uh, looking at the scriptures and um, we're looking in the Old Testament how the Jews were asked not to charge interest to fellow Jews when they made a loan. And when he had made the loan to us, he had charged a small amount of interest. It really wasn't much compared to what the banks would have gotten. And he said, um, you've already paid back more than the principal that you borrowed. And so, and this is a long time ago, um, I think there was about $1,800, $1,600 left um, on the loan. That was a lot of money. And he said, that you're done. You don't owe any more money. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking about going to school and you're not having a full-time job. I'm like, this is the hand of God. And so we shared with them what God was leading us to do. And, you know, we all just sat around and cried at how God was orchestrating what he was orchestrating. And when someone does something so nice for you like that, it's hard to get over, isn't it? It's, it, it, it simmers in your heart. What, what a generous thing for somebody to do. But the person that doesn't see the value in the money, the person that doesn't see the value in their own broken heart, doesn't get it. I don't know whether or not Simon got that the parable that Jesus was telling him was in part about him. You see, Simon, you don't really think you're that bad of a person. 
You think that your credit sheet looks pretty good on what you've put in. And that God's really not got much to do with you to clean you up. This woman over here, she's got a black book at home. Has a list of all her clients in. She knows how much she's been paid to do what. And she remembers all the what's that she's done. And she has a tough time looking in the mirror. Just a little footnote here. What if this woman was still a slave and couldn't tell her owners, I can't do this anymore? Simon, you think, you're, you think that you are clean and so you don't really need the forgiveness that I offer. She knows she's dirty and desperately needs it and is so grateful that she's gotten it. If you live long enough, you will have the misfortune of seeing church leaders, Christian leaders, who disgrace themselves by their conduct. Back in January, it was a pastor in Florida who went to see um, one of his parishioners in the middle of a day the problem is she was a married woman, had three children, and nobody else was home, and the pastor ended up in bed with her. In the mercy of God, <laughs> one of their children got sick at school. The school tried to reach her to bring the child home, couldn't, so they called the husband who picked the child up at school, brought home, only to find out that his wife was in bed with his pastor. He goes for his gun. The, uh, the husband, not the pastor. Pastor runs naked, flees the house, hides behind a fence. Now, my guess is that pastor had on numerous occasions stood at his pulpit and taught his people about things like adultery and sexual sin. And I have a sneaking suspicion because I know my own heart. And he thought, I would never be guilty of something like that. And so it's easy for me to teach on and preach against. For the life of me, I can't understand it, but he was back in his pulpit the next Sunday and has been every Sunday since. And Simon's maybe a little like that pastor and a little like all of us pastors can be. Where we look at our sheet of misbehavior and right behavior and we think, I can think of X amount of people in my congregation that they do this and I don't do this. And they do this, and I don't do this, and they fail to do this, but I do this. And draw the fundamentally flawed, unbiblical conclusion that they are clean. We are clean. Those people are dirty. And the great theological tragedy of that is that Jesus said, I didn't come for the clean in the first place. 
That's why the Pharisees don't like me. They think they're clean. Luke 5.32, I did not come to call people who think they are righteous, but people who know they're not. I came to call them to repent. So we have this very clean Simon who can't really see why he needs Jesus. And then we have this very dirty woman. And Jesus agreed. One of the misconceptions sometimes, this is a side note, but one of the misconceptions we sometimes have about Jesus is that we often say Jesus hung around with sinners, right? And I think most of us would say that, prostitutes, tax collectors, all that. One of the things that's sometimes inferred is that Jesus hung around with sinners and never called them to repent, never made a big deal about their sins. He just liked them. Mm, that's not Bible. Did you see what he said to Simon? Her sins, and they are many, but they've been forgiven. And, and I, I wonder this morning how many of us are painfully deeply aware of the enormity of our sins because there is no gratitude for the gospel there's not even a desire for the gospel apart from that now we know that in English the phrase the gospel means good news but it doesn't at first does it because there's no good news for the person that thinks they're already good. The gospel is only good news for people who recognize and grasp in a deep and powerful way, I'm bad. I'm not clean, I'm dirty. And because I'm dirty, I need the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. I'm a sinner is where the gospel all starts. And so, Christian, this morning, are you more like Simon? Or are you more like a woman who's unnamed? I'm called Vanessa. When you compare your rap sheet, your list of offenses, the police record, To other people, do you come out smelling like a rose? You know, it's so easy to, to pick selectively from what I've done and what I haven't done, and I, I make this kind of uh, pile of my, this is my track record. But God looks at this little pile I've created, and he's, he's trying to get my attention saying, well, what about all that stuff over there? Well, I didn't include that in my pile. Well, yeah, but you did it or didn't do it. Yeah, but th this is the pile I like to look at. You might like to look at it, but I see everything. And you're not nearly as clean as you think you are. Simon? In fact, you are just as needy as this call girl. In fact, you're more needy because she recognizes her need and you do not. The Simons are what make for a legalistic church. The Simons who fail to see the dirt that is etched 
not just in their clothing, but in their very souls. Now let's say you and I grasp the magnitude by which we have been forgiven. How awful the sins are and thus how awesome the forgiveness is. That's really what the woman was doing here. I grasp how awesome my sins are. I get that. And so because of that, this, the forgiveness that Christ has extended to me is incredible. It's awesome. I'll never get over this. And we may say, um, the forgiveness is so awesome that I go to church every Sunday. Listen, there are people who have not yet been forgiven of their sins who go to church every Sunday. Christ's forgiveness of my sins is, is so awesome, I give a tenth of my income away. There are people that Jesus has never met and who've never met Jesus who give more than 10% of their income away. Jesus, is, his forgiveness for me is so awesome that I teach Sunday school. Again, there are people who've never met Jesus who teach Sunday school. Here's what I want to ask us this morning. What crazy thing is the Holy Spirit prompting you to do that other people won't understand, won't believe, but you know God's asking you to do it and you want to do it because the magnitude of your forgiveness in Christ is so amazing. In Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, he, he talks about the first uh, mission trip he took to Africa, and I forget what country it was. He came back and he says to Lisa, he said, I think we need to sell our house and downsize to a much smaller home so that we can free up more resources for advancing the gospel, for ministering to, uh, to AIDS victims in Africa, for um, blessing people who don't have much. And Francis writes, not one person came alongside of him and said, that's a great idea. In fact, some of the fiercest critics of what he was doing were in his own congregation. That's not being fair to your children. That's, that's just showmanship. On and on and on. That's the kind of crazy I'm talking about. What crazy thing does the Holy Spirit want you to do that nobody else is going to understand, but you know it is a response to the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness for you. Maybe he wants you to start some sort of nonprofit organization. You see a, a need in your community or the world, and you, you say, I'd like to be able to do something about it, but I don't see an organization through which to do it. Maybe God is asking you to do that. Maybe it's something you can't do with your regular job now, and so you're going to work it so that in a couple of years you can do that full time. Maybe you're a teacher at Penn Manor or Garden Spot or Peckway Valley, and your union tells you you don't make very much money but you're doing okay, especially if you would compare your wages to that of somebody outside of the U.S. Maybe God wants you to consider taking a position at the Haven of Peace Academy in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where they always need more teachers, a school that serves missionary kids as well as Tanzanian kids. A school where you can talk freely about Jesus because the government says, if you're going to go to school, you have to pay for schooling yourself, so we don't really oversee the school and what they do there. And right now they have a science 
teacher position, they have a geography position, they have a history position, they have a high school English lit position, they have a PE for elementary school kids position. Or maybe God has blessed you so well financially that even though you are giving, say, 15% of your um, income to the Lord or to uh, the church plus some other organizations, you could easily give 40% and hardly feel the pinch. Maybe like Rick Warren, you could live on 10% and give 90 away. You haven't really thought about that. That's absurd. God only asks 10% of it, doesn't he? Maybe you are um, a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been engaged to someone for four or five years and you're planning on getting married. But if you will listen carefully enough, the Holy Spirit will remind you, you know this woman, this man is not sold out for Jesus. And if you marry him or her, you're going to compromise your following of Christ. And I want you to do the hardest thing you've ever done and break up. These are the kinds of crazy things that a God who forgives sins may well ask of us. And I want you to ask yourself, is there something crazy God wants me to do that is a reflection of the magnitude of the debt that has been forgiven me? And don't let anybody else fill in that blank for you. And don't manufacture something. If God doesn't tell you something, you don't do it. But isn't the work that Jesus did for you worth just about anything? Jesus. I'm so grateful, but I look at my response to things sometimes where I know you want me to go crazy. And I'm like, and I'm like, would that really be right for a upstanding 63-year-old pastor to do? People would think I'm childish. People would think I'm unwise. May it ever be so for those of us who are been, have been forgiven that the only audience we seek is an audience of one.